Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is David Halal. David is the CEO of Waltham, Massachusetts-based Elevate Bio. Elevate Bio describes itself as a technology-driven company for cell therapies. It has pulled together gene editing tools, induced pluripotent stem cells, and various viral vectors necessary to modify cells to fight cancer or treat other diseases. David co-founded Elevate Bio in 2017 with Mitchell Feiner, who serves as president of R&D, and Vika Sinha, the chief financial officer. They saw a big bang moment in cell therapy. Hundreds of companies were being formed around the time of FDA approval of the first CD19-directed CAR-T therapies for cancer from Novartis and Kite Pharma. They also saw that many of these startups weren't fully formed, had a piece of technology here or there, but not the whole toolkit. Many of these companies were going to struggle to raise the cash needed to invest in needed facilities, and they were likely to need help from partners to refine their processes if they were ever going to do complex manufacturing at scale. Elevate Bio raised $150 million in a Series A financing in May 2019. And it has used the money, and more that came later, to invest in a lot of facilities and people with the know-how to run them. The business is something of a hybrid. It uses its technology, people, and facilities to make cell therapies under contract for other companies. You could call that traditional contract manufacturing. But this isn't exactly a whole home service provider with relatively flat profit margins. It seeks to further leverage its technology and entrepreneurial people by investing in companies with upside potential, such as Alivir, Habata Therapeutics, LifeEdit Therapeutics, and a startup from the lab of George Daly, the prominent stem cell researcher at Boston Children's Hospital and the Dean of Harvard Medical School. David came to this moment, the beginning of the cell and gene therapy wave, after a long career in more traditional biotech. He was CEO of Alexion Pharmaceuticals, the rare disease company that was eventually acquired by AstraZeneca. He came up on the commercial side of the business, including key early career stops at Amgen, Biogen, and OSI iTech. This episode was recorded in person at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. I think it's especially engaging. Biotech history buffs will especially enjoy the first half, where David talks about what pharmaceutical sales was like once upon a time and what it was like to work at Amgen in the early days. Now, if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column, and insightful viewpoints from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Now, please join me and David Halal, on the long run. David Halal, welcome to the long run. 
It's great to be with you, Luke. Great to be here in San Francisco at J.P. Morgan. For sure. For the first time in three years, even though it's wet, it's so good to be here. It really is. You know, uh, it's oftentimes a little wet in San Francisco for J.P. Morgan. I think we're uh, a resilient group of folks in uh, in biopharma and life sciences, and uh, we have a great time no matter what the weather is like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing you tell our listeners a lot more about Elevate Bio and what you're doing right now. But uh, let's rewind to the very beginning, like uh, who you are and where you come from. So where were you born and raised, David? Yeah, I was born and raised in Rhode Island, uh, born in Providence and uh, raised in a small little suburb outside of uh, uh, Providence, Cumberland, Rhode Island. Okay. And what did your mom and dad do? So um, my dad was a veteran of the Korean War. And uh, once he was... uh, once the war ended, he actually opened up a barber shop, and uh, and he ran it for about sixty years uh, until he was eighty-eight years old. And my mom was in sales uh, in the jewelry industry uh, and worked for some really phenomenal companies, including Tiffany. Huh. So barber shop. This he must have been pretty extroverted, a people person. Outrageous. Uh, Dad uh, lived till ninety years old, and. Uh, he was uh, bigger than life and uh, recognized actually by the uh, uh, by the state of representatives uh, in Rhode Island for just an establishment that was well known as basically the cheers uh, like the bar uh, in the local community. And uh, it was really a cast of thousands and a, a lot of politicians and well-known uh, folks Uh, in the Rhode Island, southeastern Massachusetts area that used to uh, spend a lot of time with him. So as a kid, did you hang around the the shop? So, you know, I was the kind of kid that uh, until I went to college, obviously the only person who ever cut my hair was my dad. And uh, it was was such a great experience to, to actually spend time down there and learning from a lot of his friends and a lot of the folks that would uh, spend all day there really more for the conversation and uh, and the banter um, about news, politics, sports, um, and, and what they did actually professionally. And uh, it was uh, an experience that meant a lot to me and something I recall quite a bit. Um, I would also note that when dad passed in uh, December of 2020, not from COVID, but it was just time. He was 90 years old. Uh, the outpouring despite the pandemic uh, for the impact he had on the community was remarkable. Huh. Wow. So um, when you um, were, were hanging around the barbershop, um, did, um, did your, do you have siblings? Did they hang around too? Was this a family uh, kind of gathering spot? An absolute family affair. If you want to know what was happening down there, you had to be there because uh, my dad was old school. Uh, my father didn't, uh, never carried a credit card, never carried a mobile phone, didn't even have a landline in the barbershop. It was literally, you know, just old school. You had to be there. And, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, a barber's life is, you know, my, my father never, if he doesn't show up at work, he doesn't get paid. I mean, he never called it. He was there all the time. Uh, and, uh, and so oftentimes we would work around his schedule for a family dinner and get down there late at night when he was closing up at 7, 7.30. And, uh, and the family would meet down there and then we would head out for dinner uh, as a family. Huh. Now, what kind of schools did you attend? So uh, I'm a 
public school uh, kid. I attended uh, Cumberland High School. Um, one of the things to know about Cumberland High, which is pretty cool, is it's uh, where the Ferrelli brothers also graduated high school. <laughs> so I'm a, a big fan of their comedy. They actually graduated uh, with my older sister, um, which was uh, fantastic. And uh, Cumberland's actually a really uh, pretty neat place for both uh, uh, academics and uh, and also sports. Oftentimes, uh, the Cumberland Little League baseball team uh, is representing Rhode Island in the in the uh, Little League World Series. Um, I went to school at the University of New Hampshire, which I should tell you when you grow up in Rhode Island, going to school in New Hampshire is like going to school in another continent, uh, even though it was only a few hours away. Uh, and I studied uh, both liberal arts and uh, in business uh, at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, was president of my fraternity, Sigma Beta, which we just celebrated our 100-year anniversary. And I was really active on campus uh, in sort of, um, you know, um, uh, just in the presence. I actually now sit on the board of the University of New Hampshire. So I've, so I've stayed connected uh, with the school over time. What were you thinking that you would do when you grow up back then? So I mentioned uh, to you that uh, my mom really spent a, a career uh, supporting and uh, and being active in a in a sales process. Uh, one thing to know also about the Rhode Island area is, uh, you know, jewelry it was a pretty um, important part of the economy, and uh, and so my mom just kind of being in the sales arena for as long as she was, that was something that was of interest to me. And yet, um, I really wanted a a timeless industry. And uh, really, when I broke into the industry, it was as a pharmaceutical sales rep uh, with the Upjohn Company, which at the time in 1988, after Merck, was the second leading pharmaceutical shop for a number of prescriptions in the U.S. market. So your mom was in sales. And so you look up to her. And what did you see about sales that, that you thought was attractive and a good place for you to want to build your career? Okay, so let's combine mom and dad. Dad's an off-the-charts extrovert, uh, the oldest of, of, of four brothers, actually. And, and I really admire my dad uh, because he's the only one of the four who didn't go to college. Um, and that's because he was the oldest. And at that time, he actually needed to generate um, income for his, his mom and dad. And, and actually, the schools that his um, brothers went to, including MIT, uh, for uh, a master's degree for my uncle John, who was uh, president at Lockheed Martin. Um, I always looked up to that, but my dad was an extrovert who could have done anything in life. And then you combine that with my mother, who in watching her and watching kind of the sales team that, uh, uh, that, that she supported and, and worked with, I always found it to be um, an exceptional opportunity to not necessarily sell something, but to help somebody understand what they need and what they're looking for to make their life better. And that, that actually drove me as uh, somebody who is an extrovert at heart, but also loves to sort of problem solve and find solutions um, to actually work into it. And I specifically in college said I was going to sell in the pharmaceutical industry. So you studied psychology. Why was that? I'll tell you, it, it gets back to sort of the study of human behavior, and I was fascinated by it. And when you combine that with my um, the time that I spent taking um, a less of a concentration in business, but a concentration in business, you know, my favorite course 
the University of New Hampshire uh, was uh, taught by Professor Goodman. He still had an impact on me, and it was organizational behavior. And it was the sort of the importance that I learned in that class was it didn't really matter who the smartest person in the room was. It just mattered that the leader and facilitator could actually help that room to perform you know, at its greatest, really just working in teams and, you know, being able to achieve what others in the room individually wouldn't think is possible. So I was really fascinated about studying human behavior and combining that with how you could build teams to, to actually achieve what otherwise most people think is impossible. Okay. So how did you decide to go into pharmaceutical sales? You, you touched on this, but. Yeah. So I, um, certainly, uh, as I was evaluating, um, you know, different industries to consider, I did think a lot about tech. In fact, it's important to note that um, my first job out of college was actually with Motorola, um, selling um, radio systems and, uh, and 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 mobile cellular devices. And the only reason why I did that was because the folks at the Upjohn company said they were going to hire me, but. Um, they didn't have a job available at the time. So go do whatever I wanted to do. And the first available position in the New England area, they would have hired me. And so I, I wasn't the type to just kind of sit around and have a great summer. So literally like the week after I graduated, I had uh, received an offer to work for Motorola. Why pharmaceutical sales was ultimately as I was uh, thinking about a long duration career, the general view was that you know, I learned a little bit about psychology. Ironically, my first job at the Upjohn Company, our two, um, uh, you know, leading pharmaceutical products at that time were um, were products that we were selling to psychiatry and to general practitioners. So Xanax or Alprazolam for generalized anxiety disorders and depression and Halcyon for insomnia. Um but uh, but but really, the decision was anchored around a long duration industry that ultimately would be focused on innovation, and I would be playing a role in sort of connecting solutions of medicine um, with um, with providers and patients that that were looking for solutions. See, if you're thinking coming back to first principles here on sales, if you think about jewelry, say, what does a what does a diamond ring or a necklace do for the customer? Well, I, I now I'm I'm not a jewelry salesperson, so I don't know, but I'm going to guess it makes the person feel better about themselves. Uh, so there's certainly there's value in that, and there's probably more to it. But what did you see about selling pharmaceuticals that was different? Okay, so one comment about jewelry: if you think about it, it can timestamp um, a relationship as well. You think? Let's just think about an engagement ring. It can really timestamp a relationship. It's timeless. Um, now, coming back to pharmaceuticals, like, so I figure like an engagement ring is a moment in time and that actually can connect a relationship and a family forever. Think about what a special moment is when a grandmother hands down uh, an engagement ring or their wedding ring uh, to a granddaughter. And you think about pharmaceuticals, there's a moment in time in which a provider and a patient, like there's a patient in need. If it is not the addressable sort of disease, is not managed appropriately, that can have a, a catalytic negative consequence on not only the patient, but a family and a generation. And so it, it again, it's sort of a moment in time that can timestamp favorably or negatively 
um, sort of the path of a family, of a patient, a family, and 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 frankly, a generation. It can save your life or help you live a better life. It really can. And um, I think about this today. Uh, think about this. I was um, 22 years old, um, selling something like Xanax, which you know, frankly, did have some abuse properties like other benzodiazepines like like Valium. But the fact is, I think even back then, mental illness was really underappreciated. Like, it was like, what's the weakness of this person that they require a benzodiazepine like Xanax? What years are we talking? 1988. Uh-huh. Very underappreciated that this is like a biological disease like, like, like diabetes or hypertension. Um, and so I actually felt like it was a, a really neat way of breaking into the industry. We were selling on science at that time at Upjohn that there was literally a chemical imbalance and that benzodiazepine was helping, you know, you know, moderate that chemical imbalance and allowing folks, let's face it, generalized anxiety can affect patients of every different age, but you know, that's something that can actually rip apart a family and especially if not well understood uh, is a biological disease, not just one of weakness because you can't handle what, what the world is, is throwing at you. So this is your first pharmaceutical sales job, um, mental illness, Xanax, as you say. Um, this is a different era in pharma sales, right? You're uh, getting out and meeting people in person at at the clinic, right? So let's, let's talk about luck. So the Upjohn company, the New England region, and actually you're from Wisconsin. My uh, regional manager at the time, Bob Schrader, was, uh, was somebody from Wisconsin who actually at that time liked the way to become a regional manager is you accepted a relocation anywhere in the country and he was the regional manager for all of New England. When they told me, go off and do something else. Now, it only happened to be three to four months later that they called me and they had my first opening. Of 60 openings across New England, the one that opened up for me and they offered me was downtown Boston. What an opportunity to actually grow. So I was touching all of the different teaching hospitals. Now, I was not a hospital rep. I got promoted in 18 months to a hospital rep two to three years before anybody would ever consider being promote, you know, that, that Upjohn would promote one to being a hospital rep. But I had all the neighborhoods of Boston. And let's talk about the different era. Okay. Independent pharmacies were still dominant. Pharmaceutical reps would connect the doctors and the pharmacies. And I would go into, I'll give you an example. Joe and Freddie owned Green Cross Pharmacy on Hanover Street in the north end of Boston the Italian neighborhood. I was treated like family when I walked into Green Cross Pharmacy. And when they needed medications, they gave me the order directly. And I called them in out to Michigan to the Upjohn company for the shipment to take place. And many of these pharmacies, as we recall now, had lunch counters. So after you took the order, you might sit with the owner of the pharmacy and actually have your sandwich and soda pop. It was just... um, uh, it, it was a different time, and it was uh, really a time where healthcare was as much of a mom-and-pop business from both the individual practices and the individual pharmacies to the old-time pharmaceutical industry. And let's face it, some of those companies were the Upjohn Company and Eli Lilly and others. It was a neat business. 
And what about dealing with doctors? So um, access to physicians was much greater back then, though, always a challenge. And uh, and it was, and by the way, I should note that a couple of other products that I sold at that time, uh, Micronase was, uh, was uh, known as Gliburide, and that was for type 2 diabetes. It was a sulfonylurea. And we also launched at the time uh, minoxidil or Rogaine. So minoxidil was an antihypertensive medicine that was so powerful. Uh, it was a little dangerous. And one of its side effects was hair growth all over the body. And we turned it into a topical solution. And we basically sold a cosmetic. Uh, and But it was a prescription drug at the time. Uh, but But kind of coming back to access to physicians wasn't so easy. Um, but when you did have, and again, these were some of the top prescribed medicines in the late 80s, Xanax, Halcyon, Micronase, Rogaine, you certainly had a lot of access to physicians. Importantly at that time, sampling, the samples was also a legalized program, which was very important. So when you had a high Rx, physicians really wanted to have samples so that they could offer them to their patients. The last drug I'm going to give you, and I may be the only person in the world who really, when I look at Advil, I call it Motrin because Motrin was uh, one of the RXs that we sold uh, at, at Upjohn. So when I think ibuprofen, I always think Motrin. I very rarely think Advil. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, you, uh, you had a lot of fun in this job. And learned a lot. I had a blast. So I was uh, one of the youngest, uh, and, I, and I was considered, you know, quote unquote, somebody who was uh, moving quickly through the system. So as I noted, my first full year as a sales rep across all 60 of those sales reps in New England, I um, we won the region of the year for the entire country, and I was the number one rep in the country. I still remember these numbers. I, I delivered 30.7% sales growth year on year. And we had a wonderful, just an absolutely uh, wonderful uh, get together at the Four Seasons in Boston to reward everybody. And this is when, this is how conservative Upjohn was. My wife today was my my girlfriend at the time, and uh, and because we weren't married, while all the other older married sales reps had one room at the Four Seasons, uh, the Upjohn Company, I had two rooms at the Four Seasons because we were not married and, and, and we required two rooms at the time for the celebration of being the region of the year. Well, um, yeah, a lot's changed since then. Um, <laughs> okay, so how did you end up going over to the biotech industry? Was this Amgen? This is remarkable. This is an incredible story and it was Amgen. So. So after 18 months, I get promoted into a hospital rep position, which I, I would say that if you're in the commercial industry, if you don't understand the dynamics of a teaching hospital, you've missed out on a true education. Uh, and Tony Colucci was my district manager at the time, and he was a like a 30-year district manager in Boston for the hospital division. Important products to think about at that time. We had clindamycin, which was a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Uh, we had solumedrol. So we actually had some of the steroids that today are still prednisone. Solumedrol are still staples in pharmaceutical sales. And, uh, and I learned a lot in the BU, in the BU and Harvard teaching uh, institutions. 
So that was from 18 months through 36 months. Now, how did I pivot to Amgen? Let's go back to the world of erythropoietin. Fu Quin Lin sequences the gene for erythropoietin. And yet Chugai and Genetics Institute are partnering on another form of erythropoietin known as a poetin beta. Epigen was a poetin alpha. And so Upjohn was the U.S. partner for Chugai and Genetics Institute and was going to market a poetin beta. One of my friends who was in the industry for 15 years left Upjohn and went to Amgen. We are at the American Society of Nephrology Conference in 1991 in Boston at the Heinz Convention Center, and he comes by. The booth that I'm standing at is for a poet and beta, and he says, David, you've got to take a look at Amgen. It is a once-in-a-lifetime company. I said, well, what's happening there? He said, I'm part of the initial sales force. We're getting ready to double the sales force for the launch of Nupagen or GCSF. I said, well, what are they looking for? They're looking for sales reps with no less than eight to 10 years of experience. I said, I only have three. He said, if you get in that interview room, I'm convinced they are going to offer you a job. Long story short, what helped Amgen over the years to become what it is today is they won time after time important patent disputes. And in this case, a poet in beta was shut down at Genetics Institute and Amgen had full rights. Of course, they had licensed the non-dialysis rights to Johnson & Johnson at the time. So in 1991, I was offered an opportunity uh, to become one of the first sales reps at Amgen at the age of 25. The average age of the sales force at that time was somewhere in a 35 to 40 range. Uh, and it was an opportunity of a lifetime. It really changed my life. And, uh, and I was uh, remained in the Boston area and, uh, and then I spent 11 years of a very interesting trajectory uh, at Amgen. So I came in when, you know, we're talking about like biotech legends, right? George Rathman, yeah. Gordon Binder. I mean, it was a remarkable, remarkable experience at Amgen. Well, Epigen and Nupigen were really the first two big blockbuster biotech products really was, you know, at the time, Fortune Magazine, which often highlights their products of the year, and uh, the product of the year as I was leaving Upjohn to go to Amgen, um, the product of the year was GCSF. And, um, and they were just highlighting how, what a miracle it was that one could stimulate neutrophil growth with a, growth, with a natural growth factor. It was um, an incredible time and an opportunity to launch GCSF or Nupigen. Uh, at the same time that I was covering dialysis centers for Epigen was uh, was just an opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, stimulating the growth of these types of white blood cells that um, help uh, cancer patients fight off infections after chemotherapy. I mean, this was a big step in the treatment of cancer. Huge step, right? The idea was that if uh, oftentimes the number one reason for dose delays uh, for chemotherapy was waiting for the neutrophil count to come back up to a certain level. And so we had the indication for chemotherapy-induced neutropenia. And uh, our big selling message at that time was maintaining the right dose on the right time for your chemotherapy schedule so you would give the patient the best chance for an optimal outcome while also lowering the risk of hospitalization due to febrile neutropenia. 
Yeah. So um, how long were you there at Amgen? So I was there for 11 years. And uh, my wife and I moved four times in seven years. I spent time in, uh, in Thousand Oaks. Uh, we spent time in the Midwest and we spent time in Atlanta. So we had our oldest child in Kansas City. That was my first management position. I can walk you through. I spent time as a sales rep in Boston. Then I led um, uh, the relationship with United Healthcare and other managed care organizations uh, as a corporate account manager, also out of Boston. Then I moved to the Midwest and I was responsible for a significant part of the country as the uh, St. Louis district manager, but I based myself out of Kansas City uh, versus St. Louis. Then I moved out to uh, Thousand Oaks where I led a national accounts group that was focused on the oncology management practice management groups like um, like U.S. Oncology. I actually negotiated some of the largest deals, multi-billion dollar deals for Amgen, uh, where uh, those groups would buy in bulk, um, new, you know, Nupogen. Um, I would also note that I did cover a lot of the dialysis centers at that moment in time. And most people forget that blood transfusions were the only things that, that really kept dialysis patients alive uh, at that time. And, and then lastly, I, I moved to Atlanta, where I was responsible for 25% of the country uh, and close to 100 sales reps uh, for our uh, overall portfolio of Amgen products. And this all spanned between 19, February of 1992 uh, and August of 2002, when we were launching Aaron Espen Oncology. So this sounds like quite an education in the the whole industry. The I mean, everything from the micro level, individual person-to-person -person sales up through uh, how whole health systems work and how you negotiate larger deals. You kind of got all this kind of experience. Tremendous experience. I'll... Um tell you that first you're 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 launching a disruptive therapy which at the time of um you know five ten thousand dollars a year was considered an expensive medicine and uh and and here i am like selling nupogen at a place like dana farber uh what what an opportunity and then i move into the managed care arena and i will tell you with managed care organizations we actually co-marketed nupogen why if you think about it at managed care organizations they hire teams of case managers to manage admission rates and length of stays. And here I had a product to avoid hospitalizations for patients who were receiving chemotherapy. I literally had co-marketing arrangements with the managed care organizations that with the medical directors of the managed care organizations suggesting the use of Nupogen in patients who were receiving chemotherapy. Well, it's a different kind of customer with a different kind of need than, say, a physician. That they're thinking about the, what the medicine provides in a different way. Exactly right. Like, what is the real benefit? And 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 frankly, like a lot of the metrics of a United Healthcare is on their population health is length of stays and admission rates. If you like listening to the long run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday front points column plus insightful viewpoints from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Individual subscriptions are available on a monthly, quarterly, or annual basis. Group subscriptions are available at a discount. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. And for sponsorship opportunities on the Long Run Podcast, or to inquire about bringing me to your company for a speaking engagement, 
see my business development representative, Stephanie Barnes. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit contact. Okay, so you start making your way into management. And I don't want to cover every single stop along the way. Sorry. <laughs> you had a couple. The most, um, well, when did you go to Alexion? So I went to, so there were two stops between Amgen and Alexion. Uh, the first was Biogen, and that was 100% a move to, to come back to, to New England. Uh, I'm close with my family, my, my wife, the same. Uh, all of our family was in New England. Uh, after 11 years with Amgen, we were in Atlanta. We actually had completely turned around the Southeast region, and I was being asked to come back to Thousand Oaks. And that basically would have been my last path. And we had lived there, and we liked the West Coast. But success for us was not raising our kids. And we had three boys under the age of five years old, raising our kids 3,000 miles away from home. When we were kind of hitting that like last 20 years of having grandparents around and siblings and cousins. And so um, we, we, at the time, Biogen was expanding its team to enter the moderate to severe psoriasis space. So they had the multiple sclerosis franchise, and then they were moving into psoriasis. And so they hired me as the national sales director to launch this autoimmune disease category for that in late 2002. And I left Amgen to to move back home and work for Biogen in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And then there was a stop at OSI. Yeah. So before it was OSI, it was iTech. iTech was uh, known as the uh, the largest biotech company in the garment district of New York City. Uh, David Geyer and Samir Patel and others had uh, had actually, and, and Tony Adamus, who ended up working a lot at Genentech on Lucentis and, and, and other ophthalmic uh, products. We had an aptamer for anti-VEGF. It was really a transformative therapy that for the first time was targeting the underlying cause of macular degeneration. And um, it was the most successful IPO of 2004. I commuted for two years from Boston to New York. And uh, and we were well on our way to a quarter of a billion dollars in our first launch year of sales for Macugen. And then we were completely disrupted by Lucentis and Avastin. I remember that story. And it was heady times because before these this batch of therapies came out, there was really nothing for the treatment of macular degeneration. The closest thing was uh, photodynamic therapy or PDT, which was uh, there was a company in Vancouver. Uh, QLT. QLT that was partnered with Novartis. And it required a lot of imaging. And frankly, it was pretty retina specialist friendly because it was uh, retina specialists were booking a lot of fees associated with PDT therapy. So this was the first sort of uh, anti-VEGF treatment. And it, it really did bring in the entire error of Lucentis, Avastin, Ilea, and something that has made... I, I, look, I feel like Macugen was a small part of this, but we led we and ushered in this entire sort of new therapeutic class that has transformed the lives of older patients with age-related macular degeneration. What a remarkable story for society. It's a really good biotech story and probably not as well known as it could be. Um, the, the and I give, uh, you know, I was at Alexion at the time. We were having a fair amount of success with Eculizumab, Solaris, and PNH and AHUS. 
and I really give the folks, you know, Len and George and the team at Regeneron a lot of credit. You know, at the time they were developing ILEA, there were a lot of skeptics and I knew the market well saying, why are they investing so much money in the VEGF program when Avastin is available through compounding pharmacies for $50 or $100? Like, is there really a market there? Well, I think we can see what they've been able to do with a really innovative product in ILEA over the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah. So this is your um, first time really in, well, I guess Amgen was pretty small when you joined in 1991. I was employee 1,000. And when I left, there were 13,000 employees at Amgen. Yeah. So, but uh, here you are, you know, uh, working with ITAC, then OSI and and, uh, Alexion. What was Alexion like when you joined? So it was pretty cool um, when Colin Goddard and the team at OSI, who really believed in the VEGF approach at ITAC, came in and acquired ITAC. I was listed in the uh, in the S4 is one of the five uh, executives that were like must have retain executives uh, in that deal. So I did stay back uh, for a bit of time to steady the ship. Um, and then uh, and then Corn Ferry was uh, retained for a search for a head of commercial uh, for Alexion. And I remember, you know, again, I was um, still in my office at the corner of 42nd Street and 7th and Broadway uh, in, in, uh, in, in Times Square. And I'm uh, reading the Wall Street Journal about this new data from Alexion at the same time that the Corn Ferry folks called and asked if I would be interested in looking at the head of commercial role at Alexion. The data was so profound. The phase three data in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH. And, uh, and so I took that meeting. Uh, and uh, with Eric Lund, who at the time was the partner at Corn Ferry, and um, you know, that sort of cast my my path uh, from OSI iTech into Alexion. And this data, how uh, was it a phase three study or how robust was it? Yeah. So um, there were two phase three uh, trials, uh, Triumph and Shepherd. One was in a uh, heavily sort of uh, transplant dependent uh, patient population with PNH. And one was uh, patients who had bad disease, but maybe weren't um, transfusion dependent. And so both trials read out. They were very favorable I was I was brought into Alexion like nine months before the launch, and they really didn't have a commercial team to speak of. But it was a tremendous opportunity to really launch a first-in-class uh, therapeutic uh, in the U.S. But as it turned out, you know, with our crazy thinking in fifty countries around the world, and it was a big success. How how long did that take? So. Uh, I, I really have to say, and he's a uh, like a brother to me and a dear friend of mine, Lenny Bell, the uh, founder and uh, longtime CEO until I came in, uh, you know, eventually in 2015. And um, uh, Lenny and I really connected on understanding this uh, potentially transformative therapy that we had in our hands in a, mis- a misunderstood disease. It was misunderstood who had it, how many patients had it how devastating the disease was. You know, when I came in and with my experience at Amgen, you know, the greatest concern I had at the time is everybody would view PNH as a disease of anemia. And, uh, and, and we actually turned it into what it really was, was a disease of hemolysis. Because the fact of the matter is, if everybody viewed PNH as a disease of anemia, guess what you do to treat it? You provide blood transfusions. Um, but if it's a disease of hemolysis, you track what is the implication of red blood cells being destroyed in the body. Well, it's a lot of bad things, including life-threatening thrombosis. I think when there was a better understanding of who might have it, 
how to diagnose those who have it, and then why one would treat it outside of anemia, that opened up a market that was probably um, tenfold greater than the world thought that it was uh, at the time that I got there. You know, hearing you talk about this, it reminds me of this, uh, you know, sometimes it's described as a tension between science and the commercial side. There's there's the scientific idea of like how, what we think is happening biologically and how we're going to intervene. But then there's different ways that things play out in the commercial setting in the real world. And so you, that's the job of a commercial leader to figure out what you just described here. Um, and and how, so how do you think about that relationship in, in a company between the science side and the commercial side? It's a, uh, a great question. And, and I credit, you know, Lenny for understanding that um, no matter how innovative Eculizumab was, if we did not have an effective commercial process that was evidence-based, that was anchored in the science, that was anchored in the clinical data, you know, what would have happened is we would have had this wonderful product that, that fell short of having its impact on the world that it otherwise would have had. And so, um, you know, that, that's really like the science. And I remember we had this transformative image to launch Solaris into P&H, and it, was, it, it received, uh, you know, all of these... Uh, um, tremendous sort of awards uh, in the in the pharma space, which was we had the exploding red blood cell, and it was great scientific animation of like if I were in the body and I had a front row seat to a red blood cell being destroyed by complement, um, what would that look like? And then the exploding red blood cell showing all the different sort of impact on a patient's life that hemolysis has. And anemia was one of like the five or six different things. And so we were able to put it into perspective. The other thing that was important, as I've always noted, when you launch a first-in-class product, the mistake to make is that there is no competition. The reality is inertia and myths are your competition. And that is almost the most difficult competition of all. I'm going to treat the patient like I always have, I'm a little concerned about the cost. And the myth is that I, you know, perhaps can just manage this patient with standard of care, best supportive care, as opposed to a transformative therapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you have to have conversations like go really to school with the head of R&D or the, the science people to make sure that you guys were on the same page and what this thing really does and how it should be positioned in the, the world? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a great team at that time, and folks are in different places. Uh, it was Lenny. Uh, Chris Moisick was, uh, was uh, leading medical. Uh, we had Scott Rollins and Russell, Russell Rother, both from uh, Oklahoma, that were part of the founding of the company. Uh, and then Steve Squinto, uh, who is uh, uh, obviously one of the co-founders with Lenny. And, um, you know, the relationship between... Uh, the commercial team and the R&D team, medical affairs team was exceptional. And I think we really, as I mentioned, continued to focus. And they were very engaged in helping us do the work that we needed to do to educate a population of physicians, nurses, payers, and, uh, and, and the patient community uh, on this uh, really misunderstood rare disease. You're not a scientist. How do you uh, earn your credibility with these people? So I'm going to go all the way back to, you know, the pivot point. I'll say, Upjohn, some people may not recall 
I think was the first company in the industry that created a medical science liaison role. We're going back to the 80s. And frankly, at Upjohn, these were not um, PhDs or MDs. Um, they were exceptionally well-trained sales folks who became medical science liaisons. Now, since then, appropriately so, it's it's evolved into having a, a true technical background, technical training and a degree. Um, so all the way back to the Upjohn days, it was never about being a pharmaceutical sales rep. It was really about being well-educated in the science um, and the clinical data. And then at Amgen, as you might recall, if you get thrust into the world of oncology and you're selling Nupogen for chemo-induced neutropenia, like I spent most of my time at tumor conferences at places like Dana-Farber, really understanding all the different ways because you had to know how a growth factor fit into the overall treatment paradigm of all these different tumor types and chemotherapy regimens. And so I've always sort of had, while not Oh, Lenny used to kid me that I had sort of a street PhD, that I was not technically trained, but I, I certainly was able to, to hold my own uh, and work very well with our PhDs and MDs over time. I think this is a really important point because sometimes people get hung up uh, on the degree, but the reality is, I mean, there are CEOs across this industry who I've known for a long time who don't have PhDs and are very, very good uh, at what they do. And um they can explain their science uh, better in, in some cases than people who have PhDs. So I, I think there's just something about like the way you're wired and the DNA of the person where you just have to have a deep respect for the science, a deep curiosity, uh, ability to communicate, ability to understand who you're talking to. A lot of things that actually can you can learn from sales. Real curiosity, as you know, learning agility, being able to really understand the science, but then deliver it in a way that is uh, both engaging and understandable um, to wh whoever your stakeholders are. Okay. So you end up as CEO at Alexion. Yeah. Uh, I started out, interestingly enough, as the head of U.S. commercial operations, then the head of commercial operations for the Americas, then the head of global commercial operations. So the chief commercial officer, chief operating officer, and ultimately CEO. And when did you leave? I left in uh, December of 2016. Okay. Company uh, was seeking to diversify beyond the, the one original hit with Solaris. Ultimaris was in the pipeline. Yeah. The one, the one thing at that time, so we had um, <clears throat> absolute concentration of revenue around Solaris. We knew that there were potentially some IP-related issues that might expire at Solaris. The team that I led did a phenomenal job on two fronts there to protect that franchise. Uh, the first was um, really optimizing the length of patent protection for Eculizumab out to 2027 and beyond. So it remains really strong, but also recognizing that for a therapy that was reaching patients in 50 countries around the world, and you're delivering it every other week, like, and I used to talk to patients, right? Like maybe here in San Francisco where we are, it's not such a big deal for a patient to come in every other week for an infusion. I talked to patients in places like Argentina where it was uh, a 10-hour journey to get to the location to get their every other week infusion. And so under my leadership, we moved uh, Ultimaris from preclinical to phase three 
in 18 months. And we put the absolute best team on enrolling that trial very, very quickly, recognizing that that was an important innovation to patients and patients would be able to get access to this treatment more effectively. And the other thing we were doing was trying to diversify with other products and um, Asphatase Alpha, uh, one of them uh, being Strenzic uh, for uh, hypophosphatasia. Uh, and of course, um, you know, we made some other moves there to try to fortify the pipeline. But that was the idea was, can we can we sort of um, get outside of being a concentrated risk of a single asset and really try to protect that franchise, but also grow the pipeline? Okay. And now the rest is history with Alexion. It's it since was uh, acquired by AstraZeneca. Um, Ultimaris is now on the market. Um, you um, and that was a, a successful outcome for for lots of people. Remark, by the way, remarkable. So we talk about what employee number was. I, I must have been about 100 at Alexion. And when we left, there were, you know, thousands and uh, operating in 50 countries around the world and really proud uh, with what we had done to, um, I think, I think really optimize a, a rare disease uh, company. We, we built a $40 billion company, one patient at a time. And we, and we did nothing but stop short of, um, we didn't stop short of trying to deliver true transformation to children and adults with these diseases. So when you left in 2016, what were you thinking that you would do next? So um, there were a number of things. I think you wrote about this. Uh, the first uh, time I, I sort of um, put my name on a company was Scholarock. And uh, I think you actually wrote about the combination of me coming in as chairman, Tim Springer, of course, with all of his success with prior companies and his lab had this uh, really uh, neat platform out of his lab uh, where now Scholarock is focused on the biology of TGF beta. And I came in as, uh, as, as the chairman. And I'm really excited that in the five years I've been there, we moved from preclinical to now a phase three asset for spinal muscular atrophy. Our phase two data is looks really, really interesting. Looks like you know, with uh, Spinraza and Rizdaplam, like we can further transform the lives of patients with SMA. Then we have a really exciting oncology program in the clinic, uh, a TGF beta one antibody. So we're super excited about that. But as I was thinking about like, if I'm really going to be a CEO again, what, what, what might that look like? I sort of said, uh, well, I, I don't want to focus on, you know, purely a preclinical company and, and kind of wait, you know, multiple years for an IND. Um, secondly, I didn't really want to just kind of fall back on rare disease because it's something that I felt like I was a, a real pioneer and innovator in the rare disease space because I, I felt like I had done that. Um, and then I kind of thought back at my career and I said, what I want to do is something that has a runway for decades, um, you know, fairly young at the time. And, um, and I thought about the world of pharmaceuticals this way, the grand old pharmaceutical companies which I benefited from, like Upjohn, for more than 100 years focused on chemistry and small molecules. And then you had sort of modern day biotechnology, which came out of companies like Genentech and Amgen, where I was one of the first thousand employees in Biogen and Genzyme. And, and, and you think about just um, the revolution uh, of recombinant DNA technology and what that meant. And then I'm sitting there in 26, 2017, and you're seeing the first few cell and gene therapies being approved by U.S. regulators. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
It's not a matter of if, it's when. This is a dominant modality to change the world. It was super exciting. The Novartis drug and the the Kite Gilead became Gilead. 2017, both of those things were FDA approved. And yet I hadn't been touching cancer at Alexion or iTech or Biogen, but I spent 11 years focused on cancer at Amgen. So I'm looking at this saying, this is really transformative. I should also note that one of our large BD initiatives when I was CEO of Alexion was, look, we had um, built a $40 billion company, one patient at a time, cell and gene therapy seemed like, you know, a uh, sort of the ideal one patient at a time business. So we were looking at a lot of different opportunities at that time. So sort of looking at, as you noted, at these first few, you know, Novartis and Kite, and then you're looking at the work that Jeff Morazzo and the team at Spark is doing, and uh, and I knew something about eye disease, and and so you know you're just kind of seeing this, and then behind these first few products getting approved, you're realizing there is enormous scientific, clinical, regulatory, CMC, and commercial risk with all of these programs. And yet there's now a thousand companies worldwide developing seven thousand different cell and gene therapies. And how are we going to do this? How can we de-risk it? How can we accelerate it? And that's kind of where the idea of Elevate came. So before we put it together, I just thought to myself, now this seems really cool. Let's do something that actually leverages all of our expertise, including partnering with the biopharma industry, and really try to usher in this new era of medicine. Because like I said, not a matter of if, but when genomic medicine, cell and gene therapy, and gene editing becomes a dominant modality, it won't be next year, it may not be in five years, but 10 to 20 years from now, this is going to change the world. And there were a thousand companies, as you say, and they were all trying to build their own infrastructure to a large degree, like get the people, the methods, the technology, like everything under their own roof as vertically integrated companies in the classical Genentech or Amgen model, which uh, was going to be really expensive and probably not possible, not on that kind of scale. It's a really good point. So I think what we kind of looked at is, okay, how much talent is there? There's probably not enough. How much capital is there? There probably isn't enough access to enabling technologies. Like it's not one thing to just manufacture, but you need the technologies to power these therapies. The team to design the therapies, as my fellow co-founder Mitch Feiner, who spent 35 years in the space says, you know, really designing these molecules for scale up is really critical. He doesn't call it manufacturing of these therapies. He calls it large scale biology, you know, moving from a few million cells to billions of cells. Um, and so, so we're just sort of sitting there thinking, okay, like every company, and Mitch helped to start five of them, is saddled with the same challenges every time. Got to put together the team, got to raise the capital, got to think about internal or external solutions, and sort of have to navigate through all of these different significant risks that are associated with developing these therapeutics. And frankly, internally, it's difficult because the cost of capital is high. It takes time. You need to build out the facilities and uh, you have CapEx and OpEx numbers that are just extraordinary. Externally, well, look, there's like everybody that we know in the space that offers these solutions. But what we were trying to do is offer something bespoke, but industrialize it like a team you could not find anywhere externally that would be available for the industry. But we'll put that team on your project and we will bring it all the way through. IND enabling work 
all the way through clinical trials and support commercialization. So this sounds like a service business at first glance, but providing a very important service in, in, a, in a key juncture in the value chain, like, say, a, a Taiwan semiconductor for the computer industry. Is, is this an okay analogy? It is. I mean, what and, and we feel like um, Elevate really is a, a big foundry for selling gene therapy and gene editing. Um, you know, one great example that we've we've talked about, um, you know, Lawrence Kim, who I knew with Stefan, because Alexion had a relationship with Moderna and rare disease. Uh, Lawrence and 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 Abby and the team at Third Rock were starting Abata. And Abata was going to focus on uh, regulatory T cells for autoimmune disorders. And the first indication is multiple sclerosis. And they said, you know what? We're not going to do it like the way everyone else does it with our own team and our own facility. And it's extraordinarily expensive. What if Elevate just is the technology, R&D and manufacturing partner to help us, you know, move this forward? And so um, we agreed to work together. And uh, I'm proud to say Samantha Singer and the team at Abata has said publicly at meetings like this that uh, Elevate has accelerated their path to IND by more than a year for their first cell therapy for multiple sclerosis. That's the promise that we believe we can pay off for any stage of company is to do it better, faster, and more capital efficiently as a foundry, embedding our technology, our lentiviral vector process, our gene editing systems, our T-cell process, helping them with binders to target the right, um, uh, you know, d disease. Um, we're super excited about our ability to power the entire industry forward. Let's back up a bit on how you created Elevate. So you raised a bunch of money and used that to invest in some facilities, hire some people, and bring in a bunch of technologies under your banner. Yeah, great question. You know, we were like, this is crazy, right? I mean, we're we're going to raise money and we're actually going to build an ecosystem that only probably the most well-funded, highest value seller gene therapy company would be crazy enough to invest in. So we were like, we're it. I remember sitting with our land, you know, our initial landlords trying to justify, like, why would you sign up? elevate for a 10-year lease on a 140,000 square foot facility when we had cleared like the first tranche of 150 million bucks. Like they were asking the right questions. And, uh, and they looked into our backgrounds. They looked into the success that we had as entrepreneurs and, and they, they agreed to do that. And so- Did you even have Abata as a customer at that point? At that point, we, had no, we were an idea. We were an idea. We were a team uh, and we signed a 10-year lease. And, uh, you know, again, as I noted, we didn't even clear, you know, the, the first 150 million in our Series A. Um, but the idea was that if we offer something truly differentiated, back to that, David Halal, the, the sales rep, what's the problem? The problem is trying to design and manufacture and technology enable these therapeutics better, faster, and more capital efficiently than you otherwise could. So while you still have reasonable cash in the bank on your balance sheet, you are moving these into clinical development to try to show your clinical value proposition. You offer this to, to the startups. There's a bunch of these startups out there. They've got some biological hypothesis. They want to make a seller gene therapy against it. It makes more, let's make it make more sense for them to partner with us and 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 what's and what are you guys getting 
out of this. You're getting a you're getting some service revenue, but also a, a piece of the downstream economics. Yeah. So when they license something, perhaps like our lentiviral vector platform or our gene editing systems, there's obviously um, you know um, licensing revenues, milestones, and royalties associated with that. As I said, we put the best and the brightest on these products. I mean, these are these are folks who. Uh, you know, they've never worked in quote, quote unquote, a model of working on somebody else's program, but we see ourselves as the perfect partnering ecosystem. And, um, and so we participate in that. And yes, like to reserve suites and capacity, our process development group, we are tripling capacity right now because it's always at 100%. There's a line of folks wanting our expert process development team to design their molecules and bring them, then transfer them into our GMP suites so we could get them into the clinic. So, but I'll also say this, we also said to ourselves, if this is everything you need to develop the next transformative cellar gene therapy, maybe we take some measured bets on our own therapeutics as well, not to compete with our partners at all, but, 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 but really like, it actually is a way that our team is also working on some of their own programs as well. So we commercialize and monetize our technology platforms and our end-to-end -end capabilities. And then we also will take some measured bets that we can spin out. We can partner with pharma. We can spin some out into their own public companies, but spend a little bit of time on our own therapeutics also. So this is a cash flow generating business with lots of customers. How many customers? So we brought more than 10 new customers onto our platform in 2022 alone, some of which are large biotech and large pharma, also looking to be enabled in this space. And like you said, the idea is, in the fable of tortoise and hare, when it comes to cell and gene therapy, one doesn't necessarily need to be the hare. Like you need a long duration strategy that is actually gonna enable you to be financially relevant while you're also scientifically relevant, right? So. Our model enables us to raise capital, but not rely entirely on equity capital, start generating our own revenues, start working our way to lower and lower burns and eventually break even, and continue to expand our model out and serve an increasing number of partners over time. And as the balance sheet is stronger, there's a little bit more capital to invest toward our own binary events, our own therapeutics over time. You can take a few swings at the fence. I believe the best way ultimately of having a um, a really transformative therapeutic is, first of all, you need to have, you know, the financial capability of advancing them. Uh, you really do. And uh, and unfortunately, what we're seeing is, you know, perhaps some of the hairs, right, um, you know, got out of the gates very, very quickly. Um, but the headwinds of even the markets that we're in right now have made it uh, particularly difficult uh, for some companies to continue to advance their innovations forward. Now the name itself, Elevate. Um, what does that mean? Are, are you are you thinking that you can like raise the game for cell and gene therapy as a sector? Like speed it up, reduce the cost, improve the probability of success. All these things that really need to happen in R and D. One thousand percent. So we uh, first of all uh, we name our um, uh, we name our PD and manufacturing and analytical uh, uh, team or business. Uh, Basecamp, because that's like where you launch everything, right? So Elevate Bio Basecamp is where you launch all of your innovation to eventually deliver the promise to patients. But Elevate Bio in general, as you noted, if we can do this with a higher probability of success 
if we can do it better, faster, and more capital efficiently than you otherwise would maybe in the old model of trying to do it on your own, or maybe working with some very large companies that are not as bespoke as what we're offering with an R&D and process development team, then this is creating a very disruptive approach in the space. And frankly, I've just had so much fun at JP Morgan meeting with our partners. They're just thrilled with the work that we are doing to kind of help them. And, and, and look, this is what I've told our team at Elevate. We may not own 100% of these programs. We may not own any percent of these programs, but we are participating in the upside. Think about your impact on the world when you are touching all of these cell and gene therapies for this wide range of patients suffering with devastating and life-threatening diseases. What a great place to be. Now, you could go work at a company where you're working on one program and one disease, and that's your binary event, and that's super neat too. But here, I think the Elevate team is so excited to work on maybe the widest array, the broadest universe of cell and gene therapies within the industry, all under one roof. How many people and facilities do you have now in your network? So we have uh, approximately 400 people. Uh, most of those are in the Boston area. Most are based at Basecamp, which is in Waltham. We're expanding our R&D labs, process development labs, and analytical development capabilities just a little over a half mile up the road at Waltham into another uh, very large uh, property. Um, we launched out of Kendall Square. We had a loft there. And now with the... Um, Ownership of LifeEdit, which is our next generation gene editing uh, company based in Durham, North Carolina, uh, we now have naming rights to one of the, you know, if there is such a thing as a tallest building in Durham, North Carolina, we have naming rights down there. So the name of the company is LifeEdit, and we have uh, approaching now 70 staff down in North Carolina on the gene editing initiative. Um, you may have noted, uh, observed that we're also going to be expanding out to Pennsylvania as well with a second base camp facility, which is a really neat partnership that we announced over the summer. Very cool. Because um, as you and I spoke earlier, I think it is important that um, that some of this manufacturing, this advanced manufacturing, which is what we're talking about, um, there's a good reason for that to be done uh, increasingly in North America. These are good paying jobs. It's high value economic work. Uh, I personally think it's a good idea for it to happen in places other than Boston and San Francisco and, and if, um, as, as the industry grows and, and matures, that, that it can be a part of more shared prosperity in our country. I agree entirely, Luke. That's why I was so proud when uh, I, I stood with Governor Tom Wolf in, in, in Pittsburgh and uh, Anantha Shaker, the dean of the medical school at University of Pittsburgh, Sam Raymond, the director of the R.K. Mellon Foundation, uh, the team at UPMC, the team at Carnegie Mellon, when we announced that, you know, elevated chosen Pittsburgh to be another home of one of our base camp facilities, but importantly, doing it in the Hazelwood Green neighborhood of Pittsburgh, which was producing more steel than anywhere in the world, really supporting our country during World War II and um, really, that community wanted to bring the next generation industry back to Pittsburgh, but anchored around manufacturing. And so Sam and the team at Mellon Foundation said, we're going to make the largest grant in our 75-year history, and we want to bring biomanufacturing to Pittsburgh and specifically to the Hazelwood Green uh, neighborhood. Um, 
And after an exhaustive search of a lot of partners, Elevate Bio was chosen as the partner uh, that would be the beneficiary beneficiary of that grant so that we could build a base camp and really catalyze the tremendous amount of of, of, of sort of innovation that exists in the Pittsburgh area. And we don't think the air is thin there. You know, it's very interesting. Um, you know, there could be a number of other locations o- over time to consider. There are a lot of places you can do this kind of work uh, around the country. Uh, part of our um, commitment to the state is 170 to uh, six-figure paying jobs. So these are good jobs, but we believe like it's such a new industry, like training and development is really important. So we're not even necessarily saying they all need to be PhDs. We think there's a a lot of kids, community college kids that we can really train up in these facilities and really create an extremely vibrant uh, um, industry. Uh, this is an economic development story as well as an innovation story, and we're super excited to be on the leading edge of it. Who knows? Maybe there'll be some kids who... Uh Grew up hanging around the barbershop and come work for Elevate. Uh, nothing would make me more excited than that. And uh, one of the things with um, kids in school and spending time on, you know, boards of other educational, uh, higher educational uh, uh, institutions is we're all focused on, uh, you know, first generation college students. And what an impact that can be on such a great country like the United States. And there's nothing that makes me more proud. Uh, than being the son uh, of a barber uh, who dedicated his life to making the life of his three younger brothers a better place, uh, and then raising you know you know a remarkable family, my sister and brother, you know you know much more accomplished than I am, uh, and I look up to them dearly. And uh, my mother and father are you know are my two heroes in life, and they uh, um, I think about them every day. And thank God I still have mom at 87 who is uh, about as vibrant an individual as one would meet. Uh, You could not meet, uh, you know, somebody who is more optimistic and positive every single day uh, in life than my mom, who is just an absolute force of nature. Wow. Well, I think they did pretty well. Um, David Halal, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.